I want to give a big shout out and a happy birthday to my May birthday patrons. I want to say happy birthday to Helen, Mr. Serbian, Andrew, Kate, and Emily Rose. I hope you all have an amazing birthday. You celebrate it the best way you know how, which is probably listening to a podcast, but I just want to say happy birthday. Before we get started, I want to give a quick warning on this episode. This episode contains me pronouncing the city in Alberta, that is in Edmonton, as Calgary. I know based on online arguments and a lot of YouTube videos that there are three or more ways to say the name of the city. People who live in Alberta don't even agree. I say Calgary, and I have found acceptance within myself over it. Canadian listener discretion is advised. When Connie Grandinetti was murdered in 1997, the RCMP had a few leads to follow early on. Eventually, a tip led them to a single suspect. They set up a Mr. Big operation to catch him with a confession. But was the story he told the whole story? I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome back to Crime Lines, Crime Lines, the podcast. Welcome if you've found me through my new YouTube channel. And thank you to everyone here who has gone over to the YouTube channel to subscribe. It has gotten some momentum behind it recently, and so it's growing faster than it has been, which has been great. I cover, for the most part, different cases here as I do on the YouTube channel, so you're not going to just get repeats of everything if you subscribe to both. You're getting more content. So let's jump into this week's episode. This is from Alberta, Canada, and this is an MMIW episode. It has been a little bit since I've covered the case of a First Nations woman, I think, and I want to thank Tiffany for suggesting this one. This case will come up in some articles based on where the victim was found because other bodies were found in the same area. And then sometimes the case will get a mention in articles about Project Care, which was started six years after this murder. And it was designed to investigate the cases of vulnerable missing persons in the Edmonton area. And then this case also gets a passing mention in articles about Mr. Big Sting operations. So while a Google search will bring you multiple hits, the actual information about Connie Grandinetti and her life and her case could fit on a post-it note. Thankfully, we don't just use Google searches here. This case information comes largely from legal documents and several hours, if I'm being honest, in the newspaper archives at newspapers.com, one of my favorite websites. We are talking about Connie Pruden Grandinetti, and she grew up on the Beaver Lake Reserve and was Woodland Cree. There's not a ton of information about her upbringing out there, but we do know that her mother went to a residential school. Her mother's name is Midge, and according to Connie's sons, Midge was a loving, warm person who adored her family, but she did deal with the fallout from her experiences at the residential school. 
She would struggle with alcohol abuse and her temper, but she was incredibly family-focused and kept her connection to the community. So she raised Connie with all of the traditional prayers and ceremonies, which Connie would actually turn into a career when she got older. Connie had her first son when she was a young single mother, but then she met a man named Jeff Grandinetti when she was 17 and he was 19. They met at Lachlabish, which is the nearest city to the reserve. Not that it's a big city. It has about 2,500 people. The Lachlabish Mission is one of the first residential schools in Alberta. Just a little bit of history there. After Connie and Jeff married in September 1978, they moved to Edmonton, which is where Jeff was from. This was around two and a half hours south of Connie's family. They had two sons together, and according to one of them, the boys did witness physical abuse from their father against their mother. This son also said that their father would explicitly tell them to deny that they were Cree and try to forbid them from connecting with their culture in any meaningful way. Meanwhile, Connie was working as a native liaison, that's the official title, in a small school in Edmonton. She was doing at work the complete opposite of what Jeff was trying to do at home. She worked with the Indigenous students, empowering them to stay connected to their culture, even as they lived in the urban environment. She would help them with the same prayers and ceremonies that her mother had taught to her. And Connie would meet with them and their families in their homes. She would go out looking for students who had truancy issues to try to get them back into class. She worked very much in a social worker, also teacher's aide, also native liaison role. It was a very multifaceted role. Connie was very friendly, very outgoing, and she engaged with the kids in a way that got them to open up to her. Her family and her job were her two passions in life. But in February 1994, Connie took leave from work for personal issues. She was struggling emotionally as her marriage to Jeff, at this point they had been married 15, 16 years, was falling apart. Because Connie's role at the school was so much like a social worker, I'm sure you can imagine how difficult it would be for her to take on everyone else's problems when she was just trying to keep her own head above the water, something she didn't do 100% well in the aftermath. Drugs came into the picture here. When Jeff and Connie initially separated, Connie got custody of their teen boys. One of them did go live with Jeff for a little bit, but ended up moving back with Connie. In the summer of 1996, Connie hired an attorney to try to enforce child support payments from Jeff. When they couldn't resolve the issue themselves, Connie decided to go ahead and bring Jeff to court over it. In January 1997, her lawyer filed asking for an order for $1,000 a month in support and $12,000 in arrears. 
The court ordered a hearing for April 18, 1997, when a settlement still couldn't be reached. Connie intended to still ask for that same amount she put in her original filing. Eight days before this court date, two motorists were driving through rural farmland south of Fort Saskatchewan when they saw a body face down in an icy ditch not far from the road. It wasn't quite 7.30 in the morning. A search of the immediate area located a black purse that had been thrown into a small grove of trees nearby. It had gotten caught up on a branch, and inside the purse, they found the ID of 38-year-old Connie Grandinetti, and they were able to quickly compare the photo on the ID to the body. Connie had been killed by two shots to the head at close range. A dog and a helicopter were brought in to search the area to help with the search of the area, but the bulk of the evidence at the scene was found near the body. But what wasn't there was also telling. There was no large pool of blood. There were no shell casings. This was telling the investigators that Connie had been killed elsewhere, and this was the murderer's dumping spot. It was determined the body had been left there between 2 a.m. and 7 a.m., Connie had not been reported missing yet, but since she was found within five hours of her death, that's not a surprise. It was likely no one had noticed she was missing yet. So the initial investigation worked a few angles, and one was victimology. I don't know if we're all bored with having victimology versus victim blaming explained to us, but I am, so we're going to skip it. Let's talk about what victimology is rather than what it isn't. Victimology looks at the entire depth and breadth of victimization. It looks at the impacts on the person, society, interactions between the perp and the victim, and so on. The specific aspect of victimology that we are talking about is the connection between the killer and Connie. It's called the theory of victim facilitation. This is basically external factors that make the victim more vulnerable to an attack. If you identify those, you can identify the environment that brought Connie and her killer together. In Connie's case here, there were a few angles to explore. Connie did have a criminal history that involved a violent drug dealer. After her marriage ended, Connie began selling drugs as her own addiction made it hard to stay afloat financially. This would have been from 1995 to 1996. She was very low on the totem pole. She basically would get a small amount of cocaine from a supplier and then sell personal use amounts to others in her neighborhood. For most of the time, she was being supplied with the drugs by a man named Rick Pappen. Connie's boyfriend at the time, a man named Lawrence, also sold cocaine alongside her. In the beginning of March 1996, Connie stopped using Rick as her supplier and switched to someone who charged her less money. But she still sold to the same customers, which Rick took exception to. 
Connie had also been recently arrested after she tried to sell to an undercover cop. When Connie was caught, Rick was her supplier. Rick got it into his head that Connie had informed on him to the police. At this time, she was not selling for him anymore and trying to keep the customers he viewed as his. Now, Connie did not do the first thing. She did not inform on him, but she did do the second, too. About three weeks after Connie's arrest, she and Lawrence reported a break-in to the police. They alleged that Rick and another man named Calvin broke in and assaulted them. Calvin hit Lawrence hard enough to break his nose. They say that Rick then pulled out a hunting knife and held it to Connie's throat, saying she needed to stay away from his customers. He also slapped her in the face repeatedly, telling her not to try to sell cocaine around town. He accused her of owing him money and of being a police informant. Rick and Calvin were only in the apartment for about 10 minutes before they left, and Connie called the police. Both men were arrested for this. But in the interest of the whole story being reported, it is important to note that this never went to trial and they were not convicted. These are accusations only. There was a stay put in the case about eight months later, and then it never continued after that. Connie quit selling drugs shortly after the assault by Rick, and she started working towards sobriety. I am going to speculate a little and say that this incident was probably a wake-up call. It took a few more months before she was completely clean in August of 1996. So for the eight months leading up to Connie's murder, she was living drug-free. But with her murder, her past came back up. It was a year before that she had this interaction with Rick Pappin, but that's not quite ancient history. Rick and Calvin had allegedly attacked her because they thought she had informed on Rick to the police. So were they still holding a grudge, thinking this was going to come up again later? So that was definitely one angle the investigators needed to follow up on. The drug arrest and the run-in with Rick and Calvin were not the only contact with police Connie had had recently. It wasn't even her most recent case. Connie was accused by her ex-husband Jeff's family of stealing a fifth-wheel camper and then trying to resell it. She had a court date for this scheduled about five or six weeks after the murder. What's important about this situation specifically is that Connie accused her husband's family, who were not indigenous, of using one of her son's registry numbers to buy a camper without having to pay the goods and service tax. Someone's registry is similar to tribal enrollment here in the U.S., but it is handled a little differently. About half of the First Nations bands in Canada determine their own membership, and people can be included on what they call the Indian Register that way. The rest go through Indigenous Services Canada, who has a registrar, who takes applications for people to be included. As members of the Beaver Lake Cree Nation, Connie and her sons all had registry numbers. While not all GST or taxes are waived because someone is Indigenous, 
there is relief that can be applied for, and that's what it looks like Connie's in-laws, a brother-in-law and sister-in-law, were accused of doing. There was suspicion Connie was the one who turned them in for using her son's number. The link between the camper they alleged Connie stole and the camper they allegedly avoided taxes on has not been made clear, but I imagine they're connected somehow, or the situations are connected somehow, because what are the odds they're all accused of breaking the law surrounding campers and the campers aren't somehow related? Anyway, according to one source, the brother-in-law lost his job over this. The sister-in-law also lost her job around the same time after being accused of embezzlement. She was later charged, but that was after Connie's death, and I don't know what Connie would have to do with that embezzlement case because that was a workplace issue. But we do know Connie and her ex were due back in court for child support issues, including her trying to collect $12,000 in back support. So Connie, between the campers and the child support, was not the most popular person in the Grandinetti family. So we have two angles for investigators to look at, two people, groups of people who may have a grudge, the ex and or his family, and the connection to Rick Pappen and the drug scene. While the family stuff was ongoing at the time of Connie's death, the issues with Rick were older. Like I said, not ancient history by any means, but it was a year before the murder. And there was absolutely no evidence that Connie and Rick had any contact with each other since then. Not a phone call, not at the same party, absolutely nothing. Connie and Lawrence immediately moved out of the apartment they were living in for their own safety, and I mean the day after the alleged break-in and assault. They ended up getting an apartment on the other side of town, partly so that Rick no longer knew where they lived and they were no longer in his quote-unquote territory. And Connie was no longer involved in the drug business at all. And if someone wanted to get back at her for leaving or cutting out while owing money, they waited over eight months to do it, and that seemed unlikely. On the other hand, the court case dealing with Connie's ex was coming up and her stealing the camper and the other ones using the registry number. All of that was ongoing, and there was more of an immediate motive there. And when the police built out the timeline leading up to Connie's body being found, that led them to look even more at the family. According to one of her sons, Connie left the apartment around 8 p.m. in an older, dark color, half-ton pickup truck. Her son said the truck looked similar to his grandfather's, meaning his grandfather on his father's side, but he did not see who was driving it. The media reported that Connie was then seen around midnight in Edmonton in a similar truck with an unknown male driver. And Connie was likely killed between two and seven hours after this last sighting. With the truck she was last seen in, 
possibly belonging to her former father-in-law, the investigators did start looking closer at the Grandinetti family. And an issue was determining which male family member was driving that truck. There were a few possibilities. Jeff and his new wife lived with his parents, but would Connie have gotten into a truck with Jeff, willingly at least, and then hung out with him for hours? That was unlikely, if not impossible. The same with the brother-in-law, who she may have turned in for allegedly using her son's registry number. He certainly wouldn't have been someone she would have wanted to hang out with for hours. It honestly seemed odd that Connie would have gotten into any vehicle with any of her ex-husband's family. But there was one person, someone in the family, who they decided to look at a little more closely after they got a big tip from someone close to him. Someone Connie may have actually gotten into that truck with. It was someone who lived three hours away in Calgary, but just so happened to be visiting Edmonton that weekend. 26-year-old Corey Grandinetti, Jeff's nephew. Corey was a little boy when his uncle Jeff married Connie, and Connie was very close to him. She loved kids, and her family felt that Corey was one of the family members on Jeff's side who Connie truly bonded with. They didn't see each other after she and Jeff had that acrimonious divorce. And then several weeks before the murder, Corey's house was put into foreclosure, and he moved from Edmonton to Calgary to live with his parents. So it had been two to three years since they had last seen each other. Outside of this tip, which we are going to get into later, I promise, there was no strong evidence linking Corey to the murder. He was in Edmonton that weekend, and that was about it. While his extended family felt they had been wronged by Connie, that really didn't have very much to do with him. Because the RCMP felt there was enough to suspect him through this tip, but not enough to prove it, they carried out a famous, or maybe infamous, depending on your point of view, Mr. Big Sting operation. If you don't know, a Mr. Big Sting is an undercover operation where officers pose as members of a criminal organization. They enlist the suspect in their gang or group or whatever, and after the target starts feeling some level of comfort, they encourage a confession for the crime the person is really being investigated for, like in this case, the murder of his aunt. If someone is too hesitant to confess, they are given some incentives. It's mostly social pressure, like, we can't really trust you if you won't be honest, or things like, how do we know you can handle being part of the group? How do we know you're tough enough? Basically, what is sometimes called peer pressure, but is better explained through social currency. Social currency are the resources that we get and spend within social networks. To get more social currency within a group, particularly a criminal enterprise, the target of the Mr. Big Sting will be encouraged to confess to a major crime. And sometimes, like we'll see in this case, they are promised something even bigger, a way out of their legal trouble, but only if they confess. Mr. Big 
Operations have become controversial for a few reasons. Some people wrongfully think that this is entrapment. It's not. Entrapment would be if the Mr. Big sting convinced or enticed people to commit a crime and then prosecuted them for that crime. That's entrapment. People are not being prosecuted, as far as I'm aware, for the crimes they commit for the undercover officers. The only thing they'll be prosecuted for is whatever they are already suspected of having done. The real question, concern, and criticism is about the validity of a confession if there was any type of enticement to get it from someone. People falsely confess for a lot less than is offered in these Mr. Big operations. They're offered things like increased standing in the group, promises of future earnings through these illegal activities, and also sometimes the chance to get out of a legal entanglement. Those are all things people would falsely confess for. What I would consider a successful Mr. Big operation would always have to have a check. Get the confessor to say or show something that proves they were involved. The type of holdback information police use to vet tips and confessions. But it doesn't always work out this way. Sometimes the confessor gives inconsistent stories. Sometimes they even give bad information or claim they were drunk or high when the crime happened. So, you know, they don't really have the details. All of that happened in the last case I covered with a Mr. Big Sting. It was in January of 2020, when I covered the children of the Highway of Tears, and we talked about the case of Monica Jack, another missing and murdered Indigenous woman and girls case. In that case, they got suspect Gary Handland to confess in a Mr. Big operation, and his confession was a rambling mess. He claimed he was drunk and couldn't really actually remember a lot of the murder. But he managed, with some encouragement, to eke out some details. But a huge issue was that Hanlon was aware of the case and even knew he was a suspect. So the information he gave was largely known to the public by anyone who had followed the case. To get this confession out of him, they told Hanlon that the police were going to arrest him for the murder of Monica But if he gave them some details, they had a guy who would take that information to the police and take the fall for him. Believing he was going to be arrested, Handlin confessed to the undercover. And when he was actually arrested, he recanted his confession immediately, saying that he only said it because he thought he was going to be arrested and he thought he was being offered a get-out-of-jail-free card. So he took it. So that really illustrates some of the issues that come up with these confessions that are through the Mr. Big sting operations. You'll have to go listen to the episode if you want to hear more about Handlin in particular and Monica Jack's case and the resolution there. I don't want to get too far into a different topic. Let's get back to 1997 when Corey Grandinetti was the target of one of these operations. People were not asking so many questions about them back then. This particular sting was called Project Kilometer, and it began in July 1997. As far as Corey was concerned, this was an international criminal enterprise that dealt in money laundering and drug trafficking. 
They wanted to set up shop in Calgary, and they wanted him to be their contact there. In helping the organization get into the area, Corey would have the chance to make hundreds of thousands of dollars. Something very relevant to note here is that Corey needed the money. He had a serious cocaine habit, and he pretty much lost everything. His house had been foreclosed on, his girlfriend moved out, he lost his job, he started selling his belongings a piece at a time just to make any amount of money. At the age of 26, he had to move in with his parents. Working with a major drug trafficking syndicate would solve two of his problems. One was money to support himself, and the other was access to cocaine. So Corey suspended all disbelief over why a major international crime organization would pick him, a cocaine addict who lived with his parents, to help them get established in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. He didn't even wonder why Mac, the actual head of the criminal enterprise, worked directly with him. Not a question in his mind. Corey spent a few months in 1997 carrying out what he believed were illegal activities for the group and getting paid for it. Pretty early on in the operation, Mac, the undercover, broached the topic of Connie's murder. But Corey wouldn't talk about it at all. Mac and the other undercovers tried a couple of angles to get Corey to say pretty much anything about the killing. It didn't necessarily even need to be a full confession, though that would have been nice. They were hoping to get any clues or evidence linking him or anyone else in the Grandinetti family to the murder, but Corey was not saying anything. In late October 1997, three months into the sting, they changed tactics pretty drastically. The undercover officers told Corey that they knew corrupt cops. One of the undercovers, using the name Dan, said that he had been charged with murder, but they got a shady RCMP officer to hide some photographs and get a witness moved out of town so they couldn't testify and basically sunk the Crown's case. They were forced to reduce the charges and Dan was able to plead out. So about two weeks after telling them about fictional Dan's fictional case, Mac told Corey that he asked his police contacts about Connie's murder and learned the name of the lead investigator on the case. He gave the name to Corey and it checked out that was the lead investigator. Corey already believed Mac was a criminal. There would be no reason this international criminal, barely coming to Alberta, barely coming to Calgary, would know who the investigator in Edmonton was unless he really did speak to someone in the RCMP. Because Corey believed, lie number one, he was able and willing to accept everything that came after. Now that they proved that they had RCMP contacts, the undercover suggested to Corey that they may be able to use these same corrupt cops to steer the investigation of Connie's murder and they would steer it away from Corey. And Corey still didn't want to talk about it. He had nothing to say. So then they pivoted a little and said that this deal they were offering him, it wasn't really for him. It was for the group. It was for their self-preservation. 
they couldn't risk their main man in Calgary becoming wrapped up in an intense police investigation. It would throw way too much attention their way. Corey, as a suspect in a murder investigation, was a liability to them to protect the organization and the job Corey had within the organization. They suggested he come clean. It has been written that they forcefully suggested that he come clean, which I think we can all accept as true, even without hearing a recording of it. They were playing the part of international criminals, and they were undercover officers hoping to get a confession. I don't think any of us would think they would have asked politely. It was at this point that Corey did confess to the murder of Connie. He provided enough details that they believed him, and he brought the undercover agents to where Connie was killed. After this, Corey was arrested on December 9th, 1997, and charged with Connie's murder. When his arrest was announced, it shocked people on both sides of the family. Connie's family knew she thought the world of Corey and that he was someone she had a close relationship with before the divorce. And Corey's grandmother said the police had the wrong person. Corey was a gentle young man who would never have murdered someone in cold blood. But the Crown thought otherwise, and they started preparing for trial. The defense prepared by trying to get the Mr. Big confession kicked out. Attorneys for years and years tried to find something that would bring the Mr. Big confessions into question for their clients. But it wasn't until 2012 that there was the first big challenge to these confessions. The new legal standing for them now, as of 2012, was that they're actually inadmissible unless the Crown could show the court why they should be allowed in. The shift that happened in 2012 was basically who had to prove admissibility. The Crown now has to prove that the confessions should be allowed in, whereas in Corey's case, the defense had to prove the opposite. They had to prove they shouldn't be allowed in. One angle they argued was that the confessions rule applied regarding persons in authority. In Canadian law, any statement or confession given to a person in authority has to be proven to be voluntary before it can be deemed admissible. There had to be an actual hearing over it. If the officer, aka person in authority, is undercover, this requirement doesn't count because the person talking, the person confessing, didn't know they were talking to a person in authority. But in this case, the defense was saying that since Corey thought they were criminals who were working with police officers, then they were, in fact, a person in authority, and they needed to prove the statement was voluntary. The Crown said that undercover officers are just simply not persons in authority, and they couldn't be perceived as such, even if they had ties to the police, because the point of their ties to the police was corruption. It was to thwart an investigation, not aid it. So this seems to be a very nuanced difference to me, but the judge agreed with the Crown. She ruled that there did not need to be a hearing to determine if the confession was admissible because they were not persons in authority. So the confession was in. The defense also wanted to bring in evidence of a third-party culprit, Rick Pappen, like we talked about in the Kyler Eust trial last week, 
the defense had to present the evidence and the judge would decide if it was credible enough and solid enough to have the jury hear it. Two hearings were held on the Rick Pappin issue and they had the same outcome. So we're just going to talk about all of the evidence at once. The defense had Connie's son, Dustin, testify, and he said he did know that his mother sold cocaine in 1995 and 1996, but he only witnessed one incident where he knew that she had sold drugs. He said he met Rick Pappen a few times, but actually never saw Rick hand Connie drugs, never heard him threaten her, didn't witness anything like that. He testified that his mother told him Rick was her supplier, but that she found someone else who charged less than Rick did and that she was afraid of Rick. What Dustin knew about the connection between his mother, drugs, and Rick was hearsay. It wasn't direct knowledge. He didn't witness anything. He heard Connie say she was afraid of Rick, but never witnessed that, never witnessed what led to that fear. So that wasn't terribly persuasive. Connie's boyfriend at the time of her murder, Lawrence, also testified about the alleged break-in and the assault by Rick. And then they had a constable who interviewed Connie in January 1997. Connie had been arrested on those drug charges in March. And in January 1997, they were detaining her again based on that incident. While in custody this time, she did speak with the constable and she did inform on some of the drug dealers in the area. However, she did not give information on Rick Pappen. Rick did come up in this interview, though, and Connie said she was not afraid of him and she would testify against him for the break-in and the assault if that case moved forward. But she didn't give any real information about his drug dealing. At this point, there was a stay in the proceedings against him in that assault case, and it wasn't looking like it was going to trial anyway. So on the one hand, the constable does have Connie saying she wasn't actually afraid of Rick anymore, but also has her saying she would testify against him, which might give him some motive. Rick's ex-girlfriend Elaine testified about his propensity towards violence. She confirmed that Rick did believe Connie ripped him off and had informed on him to the police and told her about it shortly before the alleged assault. So that, again, is a full year before the murder. Elaine broke up with Rick at some point and then started dating someone else in the summer of 1996. In early 1997, Rick confronted Elaine in a bar, saying that she had a gun of his. He grabbed her by the throat and threatened her, which she reported to the police. Rick was arrested and in lockup until April 7, 1997, which was three days before Connie's murder. The new guy Elaine was dating was named Ricky. So we have Rick and Ricky. That's not going to be confusing. But Rick and Ricky had their own connection. They had actually known each other for over a decade. The person Rick allegedly broke into Connie's home with was a man named Calvin, who was also Ricky's cousin. So we have Rick, Ricky, and Calvin, and they're all connected. This is going to be a little bit of a confusing part, and if you don't catch it all, don't worry. It's, it's not any key to solving this case here, but to explain it a little bit. 
Ricky testified that Elaine told him that Rick was a police informant. A week or two before the murder, while Rick was still locked up, Ricky told Calvin that Connie was going to get information to prove that Rick was an informant, and then Ricky would use that information to expose Rick while he was locked up, and, well, that probably wouldn't go too well for Rick. Ricky actually said he hoped people inside would beat Rick up if they heard about him being an informant. The bottom line to that story is that Calvin, being friends with Rick as well, may have told Rick what Connie and Ricky were planning to do that would then put him in danger. So the defense was basically trying to show a few reasons Rick might want Connie dead. Not just the stuff from a year before where he thought he got ripped off and she informed on him. Three months before the murder, Connie told the constable that she was willing to testify against Rick. And then a week or two before, Connie had plans to expose Rick for being an informant, which would put him in danger. So it wasn't removed motive from a full year before, and Rick had the opportunity. Not only did Rick not have a solid alibi, he had just been released from jail days before. However, the judge ruled in this case, it just wasn't enough. It was too speculative. There was no evidence that Connie and Rick had any contact after that assault. No one could back up the story about Connie having proof that Rick was an informant. There was no evidence anyone told Rick about any such plan, should it exist. It was really just this guy, Ricky, who already said he was trying to get Rick beat up in jail, so why not get him tied up in a murder investigation? Ricky is the only one with this information. There was no evidence that Calvin, Elaine, or Connie had contact with Rick while he was locked up in order to tip him off that something was going on. The most solid of the motives was that Rick believed Connie informed on him and that he thought she might testify against him in a case. And both of those motives stemmed from a year before. So why did he wait to do anything about it? His three months in jail were due to an incident with Elaine And Rick knew that. He vocally blamed her for getting him locked up. He wasn't under some delusion that Connie had gotten him locked up. So if he was going to get out of jail and seek revenge, why was it on Connie and not Elaine? The judge said it was just too much speculation. She wanted a direct connection between Rick and the murder, and she just didn't see one when the only compelling motive was a year old. The trial happened in early 2000 with Rick Pappen out and the confession in, and the Crown prosecutor opened with the theory of the crime and made some bold claims. The prosecutor said that not only had Corey killed his aunt, but that his uncle Jeff was the mastermind. Jeff was never charged in relation to Connie's death, which is why I consider this a pretty bold claim to make in open court against someone who wasn't charged in the crime. But the Crown claimed that Jeff and Connie were fighting over money, and they were very soon going to be in court over $12,000 in arrears that Connie claimed Jeff owed. The prosecution said that Jeff called Corey and told him he wanted Connie dead 
and the price for that murder was $10,000. That's a lot of money, particularly to someone like Corey, who was in active addiction and in a bad place financially. In February 1997, two months before the murder, the Crown alleged that Jeff borrowed that exact amount of money, $10,000, from a friend. The friend took the money out on a personal line of credit and gave Jeff the cash, making it so there was no paper trail between Jeff and the money. Jeff even traveled from Edmonton to Calgary to pick up the physical cash rather than have it transferred between accounts, according to the Crown. None of this was enough to take Jeff to trial, so let's remember that he remains almost 25 years later still innocent of any crime. So let's get into that tip that sparked the Mr. Big investigation, and that was the main witness against Corey, in my view, his ex-girlfriend, Cindy. Cindy testified that Jeff first brought up killing Connie in 1996, but that she and Corey brushed it off. They figured he was just venting due to their arguments over money. Cindy said that around Christmas 1996, Jeff brought it up again. The conversation was a little bit more in-depth this time, with the figure of $10,000 being brought up, and Corey saying he thought he had a friend who lived in Vancouver who might do it. It wasn't long after this that Cindy moved out, but she and Corey were still in contact, and Corey still confided in her. He told her in mid-March 1997, which would have been a month before the murder, that he went over to his grandparents' house in Edmonton, where Jeff lived, and Corey said Jeff had the money to have Connie killed. He said he wanted her dead before Easter, which was just a few weeks away. Corey needed the money, so he told Cindy he was going to do it. And Cindy told him, absolutely not, don't do it. She thought that he was just talking tough, that he wouldn't actually do it. He liked to exaggerate his criminal ways to show off a bit, but he was actually a really nice, gentle guy who would never have done it. So she didn't take him very seriously. Corey then told Cindy on another call that he found Connie's address through the court filings against Jeff, and he went to visit her. The two talked for a bit, and he asked about cocaine, but Connie said she was clean. So Corey asked if she knew where he could buy some, and she said she did. So Corey told Cindy that this was his ruse. This is how he was going to get Connie alone. He would meet up with her and have her bring him somewhere to make a buy. And this is one of those parts of the case that kind of gets you in the gut a little bit. Because Connie thought a relative who she loved, who she watched grow up, who she missed from her ex's family, was trying to reconnect. She thought they were connecting, and he was literally just plotting her murder for money. Cindy and Corey got into a big blow-up argument at this point over it. Cindy knew Corey's family didn't like Connie, not just Jeff and that stuff, but also the stuff with the other relatives. But Cindy tried to tell Corey that literally nothing Connie did or could have done would be justification to kill her. A couple days after this, Corey showed up at Cindy's house, and he had a stack of cash. 
He said it was a $2,000 advance for the hit on Connie and said that Karen, Jeff's new wife, gave it to him. Cindy said she and Corey then used the money to go on a Coke binge. Within the next few days, Cindy said she started to grow more afraid of Corey. So on April 8th, two days before Connie's murder, she took out a no-contact order. She did not, however, inform the authorities that Corey was planning to kill someone and had gotten money already to do it. Cindy actually didn't say anything until six weeks after the murder. The police had spoken to her before, but she protected Corey. She eventually admitted what she knew, and that was a big part of why they zeroed in on Corey for that Mr. Big operation. The defense, of course, jumped on Cindy's previous denials. Why didn't Cindy tell the police sooner? Ideally, before someone was killed, but at least immediately after. Cindy said she was scared, and I'm going to say she probably was. She was scared enough of Corey to get a peace bond before he killed someone. There was something going on there that was frightening her. So after she believed he killed someone, surely she was even more frightened. And Cindy had to have been concerned about her own legal liability here. Corey told her he was going to commit this crime and she did nothing to stop him except tell him not to do it. Then, when he showed up with $2,000 and told her it was basically a down payment for murder, she still went with him using that money to buy cocaine, something that's also illegal. Cindy had a lot of reasons to be scared to come forward earlier, and she was not the only person Corey talked to about the murder, so his friend Blair took the stand. Blair lived in Calgary with Corey, and he testified that he drove Corey to a bus station. Corey showed him two vials of liquid that he claimed was pure heroin, and Corey was delivering it to Edmonton. Blair dropped Corey off, and Corey got on a bus to Edmonton. The day after Connie's body was found, Corey flew back to Calgary. Back home, he showed Blair a container with a bunch of $100 bills in it, and Corey said it was $5,000. He was supposed to take that money to a drug dealer to pay for the heroin he had brought to Edmonton, but the drug dealer just so happened to die before Corey gave him the money. So Corey got to keep the money, and he and Blair then partied for the next couple of weeks, basically until the money ran out. One night, when the two were hanging out, Corey made a comment to Blair that he had looked after some family matters while he was in Edmonton. And Blair gave some generic reply like, well, that's good. And Corey said, you don't understand, I killed someone. Corey got on the stand to rebut not just what Blair said and what Cindy said, but also the Mr. Big confession. He really did have a little bit of explaining to do to the jury here. Corey immediately denied killing Connie, and he denied that his Uncle Jeff had ever talked to him about it. But Corey did admit that he picked Connie up at 8 p.m. on April 9th, 1997. So Connie's son was right. That was his grandfather's truck. Corey had borrowed it. 
He said that he and Connie went out looking for somewhere to buy cocaine. They stopped at several bars where Connie would go in for a few minutes while Corey waited outside. He wasn't sure who Connie was looking for, but it did seem to be someone specific. At one point in all this driving around, they pulled over and Connie told Corey a little bit about her issues in the last year with a man named Rick Pappen, who Corey said she was also having a sexual relationship with. It was when that relationship ended that she stopped selling for him and felt like she wasn't allowed to sell for anyone else. Corey said he and Connie talked during the night about maybe going into business together selling cocaine. But as they drove around, Connie's mood got worse, and they decided not to go into business together. Eventually, Corey said he dropped Connie off around midnight at the Beverly Crest Hotel, and then he went to his grandparents' home and went to bed. It would have been around 1 a.m. that he got back. His alibi for the time of the murder was that he was asleep at his grandparents' house. Corey said he was in Edmonton for a few reasons that weekend, none of which had to do with killing Connie. One was to drop off the heroin that he had shown to Blair. The other was to see about getting his house out of foreclosure. And the third was to help an uncle set up an office. Helping the uncle was, according to Corey, the family matter he told Blair he had attended to. He denied ever saying that he killed someone. Corey flew back to Calgary the day after Connie's body was found, but he said he didn't even learn she was dead until the day after that. He said the money he had when he got home was exactly what he told Blair it was, money he got for dropping off the heroin, and he was supposed to bring the money back to the supplier, but that guy was dead, so Corey kept it. Now let's talk about this money for a minute and do a little bit of math. Corey, who had no money, suddenly had $2,000 shortly before the murder. And then he had $5,000 right after the murder when he returned to Calgary. And he also paid $1,800 on his car payment shortly before leaving Edmonton after the murder. As in, on his way to the airport, he pulled over and paid $1,800 on his car payment. So we're at $8,800. How did Corey, someone who was unemployed and had a $3,000 a month coke habit, suddenly have $8,800? He had taken a bus to Edmonton, but he could afford a flight back. So let's add in the money Corey spent on that flight. What are we at now, $9,000? We are definitely getting closer to that $10,000 number, the amount of money one of Jeff's friends allegedly gave him in cash, and the same amount of money Cindy said Jeff allegedly offered Corey to kill Connie. Instead, Corey claimed he got the money because a drug dealer just dropped dead and his parents gave him the money for his car payment. And they just so happened to all do these things the same day Connie was murdered. As far as the confession during the Mr. Big sting, Corey testified he wanted out of the organization, but he already knew too much, and he didn't think they would let him leave, not alive anyway. So he was trying to seem braver and tougher than he was by admitting that he killed someone. 
This trial took 10 weeks. A big chunk of it was deciding whether or not Rick Pappin would be allowed in as an alternative suspect. And then the jury took the case. They had a mostly circumstantial case here. But looking over the evidence they had, they did some math, just like we did, and they found Corey Grandinetti guilty of killing his aunt, and he was sentenced to life with a non-parole period of 25 years. However, Canadian law would allow him after 15 years to apply to have that time shortened so that he could apply for parole sooner. There is no easy way to look up that information online, unlike in the U.S. where we put everyone's business on the internet. Canada does not make inmate information easily accessible to the public. If Corey has been released, the media hasn't reported on it from what I can see, so that makes me think he probably hasn't been released. Though there has not been a lot of reporting on this case since the trial, at the time of the trial and at the time this happened, there was a lot of reporting. So I imagine that if something had happened in this case, like the release of the convicted killer, it would have been mentioned. Corey did appeal and it was denied. At the time of Corey's conviction, they announced that the case wasn't closed. They were still actively looking at others who were party to the murder. Based on the testimony during Corey's trial, it's not hard to guess who they meant by that, but no further charges have been laid. Legally speaking, Corey alone has paid for the murder of Connie Grandinetti, but we know the people who have paid the highest price are those who loved her. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crimelines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crimelines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for.